Hey guys, uh, I'm Andrew. I'm an alcoholic. Um, Andrew. Andrew. Hey all. Hi Andrew. Uh, uh, thanks Al for asking me to speak. That's right. I I remember meeting you. With you being new, coming out to my house to do service after a really unfortunate, and I'd been jumped by a gang and beaten almost to death. And I, you know, I'll just, at, at the risk of being out of order, like at the time that happened, I had about 10 years of sobriety and my life had started getting kind of big. And it's something I've seen happen to a lot of people. And for me, you know, there was a lot, there's been a lot, my story has mostly to do with grace of a higher power. But, um, you know, at the time that this, this thing happened, I was coming home at like 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. I was the last guy off the subway and I got jumped by a bunch of guys and they beat me and I had to get reconstructive surgery on my face and a uh, broken collarbone, couldn't work for like six months. And um, at that time I was clocking maybe one or two meetings a week. And yes, Angry Brian at the time was my sponsor. Um, he was a great sponsor that I was underutilizing. Um, but I had to go to the hospital and I was in immense pain and I was going to have to take opiates for the surgery. And uh, I reached out to Brian and it was like two in the morning and I was in an ambulance and all this stuff. And he was like, yes, let them give you medicine. It's not sober for you to not take medicine, you know, like you need to trust God. And, and he organized bringing meetings to my house. And I don't think that bad stuff happening to me was God's will. I don't really jive like that. But I do have a belief that, like, if I look anywhere for God's will, if I need to find it, it's available for me. And that wound up being a turning point in my sobriety. You know, people started bringing meetings to my home where I met Al and uh, AA did the thing that AA does where what for some guy is just a Friday night that he's doing a thing that his sponsor advises him to do was saving my life, you know. Um, and then on occasion I, have, I, I get to take the turn and be the guy that goes to the you know, to help somebody at the hospital or like a graveyard or whatever. I love the fellowship of AA. You know, the way I understand it is, is AA is like a couple of things. It's a fellowship of people. So we meet and we do these meetings and we, we are in each other's lives. You know, we, we take care of each other. And then it's also a program of action outlined in the steps. And my story is one of those where I have you know, unsuccessfully tried to stay sober on the fellowship alone a few times and it didn't really work. And I've also tried to stay sober um, just trying to like practice these principles without the fellowship and that didn't really jive for me either. It's meant to be done in tandem, I think. Uh, and you know, when I do that, I get all the benefits of, of AA. And I guess, you know, there's, there's a few new people here. So the one thing, the most important thing that I want to say that, um, you know, why I'm here and all this stuff is that I haven't had a drink in a long time. And, um, and that's great. That is a miracle. That is beyond a miracle. But the real miracle for me is that I don't remember the last time I needed a drink. I don't need alcohol. I have been relieved of this compulsion to drink alcohol. Um, the last time I had a fleeting thought about drinking 
I think was two years ago when I had been, I was trying to come back to New York where I live from a work trip and there were all these storms and there was like, you know, my flights got delayed for like, you know, 50 hours and I had been sleeping on an airport floor and by the time I was finally on a plane back to New York, everyone was exhausted and the drink tray, everybody was like clearing out all the booze on this plane <laughs> and the drink tray stopped right in front of my seat and the stewardess like went to go do something and there was this big, you know, thing of all this booze and I had this thought, man, it must be nice for people to take the edge off. And then I was like, wow, that was weird. I haven't had that thought in a while. And then it passed. Um, that thing it talks about in our book in the 10th step where we, it says we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. It is as if the problem is removed for, by this time we'll be restored to sanity. And I still have a crazy life and a lot of like mistakes and all this stuff, but like, I don't want to drink. I have been relieved of the compulsion to drink. And when my life is going good, it's very rare that I think about drinking. And when my life is really challenging, it's even more rare that I think about drinking. And that's what AA has given me. And it's been, and I can truly say it has been a gift that has been given to me. Um, I had a period in sobriety where I, maybe, maybe it was just what I needed to be at the time and like where I was at. But I had a few years in, in sobriety where I was kind of dogmatic about AA and I, and I thought, you know, like, you have to do this rigid thing. You have to, you know, sponsor this many people and you have to do that and, and, you know, always say yes to everything. And, and, and that's really where I was at. And I got whatever benefits were there for me to have from having sobriety like that. But it wasn't really sustainable because the, what I was doing at that time was I, the only way I understood my higher power was that, I was still trying to become good enough to be an AA. I was trying to earn sobriety. And uh, kind of with the trip I'm on now is that, you know, if there is a higher power and if there is a, a God or whatever that I'm actually trying to get in touch with, um, it, I can't believe that it needs me to swim the English Channel to be sober. You know, wherever I'm at right now is good enough. I've got everything I need to lead a sober life. And, um, you know, these, thing, these things that are outlined for us to do, their directions are like a recipe. They're not mandates, man. This isn't like, I, you know, I kind of wanted to get an A++ and AA, and then we get very disappointed when I wouldn't do it. And I even had people tell me, you know, the 10th step is not meant to be used as a weapon against yourself. You know, <laughs> that's not what we're doing here, man. Um, but that's, that's, that speaks to kind of the stuff that I'm trying to treat and my causes and conditions. Uh, my untreated alcoholism, whether I'm drinking or not, is being, I get just consumed by fear and guilt and shame. And I can't really sort any of it out. That's just, that when I came in here, I was like a ball of fear, guilt, and shame. And I lived on character defects because... That's the only way I knew how to get through the world. Um, so I grew up right up the road on 35. I grew up in Dallas. Um, Dallas is a great place. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tale of two cities, and I kind of had both of them at the same time. <laughs> um, I, uh, 
my existence as as a child or whatever was not a binary thing. You know, it was it wasn't like all good or all bad. There were some really really wonderful things about growing up where I did when I did, and my family. So there was some awesome stuff about it and some awful stuff about it. You know, it was a mixed life, and um, I don't think any of that is what necessarily makes me an alcoholic. I have people. I have drunks on both sides of my family. Um, and my, you know, my folks, my, my parents were like, when I was young, they're like, if you drink, there is a good chance you're going to be a drunk. Just, you know, putting that out there. And, uh, my dad is, you know, it, it doesn't affect everyone in my family. You know, my dad can have a beer. He he would drink a few beers every now and then and hide it from the rest of the family. And maybe he had a problem, maybe he didn't, but he never... Nobody ever saw him drunk. Um, he had a relationship with sleeping pills that may have been questionable, <laughs> you know. Uh, but he kept it together. And a lot of people in my family, that's how they roll. And you don't find out how bad their alcoholism was until uh, until they die and all the stories come out, you know. Um, so for me, I was warned about this stuff. Um, I was intrigued about about it. I was scared of it, too. Um, and I grew up, you know, simultaneously, uh, I mean, maybe this is a good summation of Dallas where there was a lot of privilege coupled with a great deal of violence and trauma, you know, and a lot of love and a lot of people doing the best they can. But, um, you know, childhood was rough in a lot of ways. Uh, and, you know, throughout my life, there's, there's been some traumatic things that have happened and, and I've had a lot of violence enacted upon me throughout my life. And I don't think that's, I, to, to tell you the truth, I think I would have been an alcoholic anyways. Um, I don't know if it has anything to do with that. You know, my sister, had, with all the problems she has in her life, you know, like she has no qualms with alcohol at all. It has no hold on her whatsoever. Um, my first drink, uh, well, before I had a drink, I had... Um, I was the first wave of the Ritalin projects that we like to say, you know, uh, when they first started medicating kids that acted weird. Um, and so I got put on the, the wonder drug Ritalin and all that stuff. And me almost immediately started taking it not as prescribed. And I didn't ever really think about it as using, you know, but like I had the, you know, Jewish dad, Baptist mom spent a lot of time in church getting really weird and I could pop all these pills and talk about Jesus and it was like a really weird blow your hair back kind of thing to do you know uh tearing the youth group up or whatever and I had my first drink shortly after that maybe 10 11 somewhere in there and as soon as I felt the al the alcohol changed my mind just a little bit and I became normal I really really believe the first time I drank, I really joined the human race. You know, like, I was so wound up that even just letting go a little bit was relief. And so for me, you know, honestly, the whole time I drank, alcohol, you know, of course it was a social lubricant and it was fun and, you know, whatever, but, like, I did all my drinking and drugging really, really young and I got sober young I didn't have the wonder years that a lot of people have, you know, like I, that first time I drank, I developed, you know, the alcoholism is in the doctor's opinion, they outline it as a, you know, a couple of things. And 
uh, a mental obsession and a physical craving. And the first time I drank, I developed the mental obsession. You know, like as soon as I joined the human race and I was with all these like guys that maybe they would have been picking on me because I was such a weird kid. You know, I, I come from a long line of socially awkward weirdos. And uh, but poor little booze on it, man. And I was like with them, clowning with them. Everything was cool. Um, and now I've come to realize that they were all in the same boat I was. <laughs> you know, like they were all just as weird as I was. I just I didn't know we all we all thought that. Anyways. So I had this mental obsession immediately. I, it, you know, that is when I'm not drinking, I'm obsessed with how I can drink. And even when I know drinking doesn't work for me, I'm obsessed with trying to find a way to make it work, mm-hmm. trying to find a way to do it without like torching my life. Um, and I had consequences from the get go. Then soon after that, I think within that year, uh, or within the first within the first year or year and a half of drinking. I developed the phenomenon of craving, which was that no matter, it it was like self-control was like completely not even a, you know, it was a moot point. If there was alcohol there, um, I had to have it until it was gone. And occasionally, you know, I could do this thing where I might have a couple of beers and, uh, and that would be that. But, um, more often than not, and increasingly, I just didn't have any control. And even if that meant is like a 12 year old kid, I was drinking by myself in the alley. Uh, that's just what I did, you know, and we did, we did typical things as kids, you know, we like, we robbed a few houses and, you know, we, we screwed around and, uh, and people got in trouble. And, you know, like I said, where I, where I grew up and how I grew up, uh, Maybe if any of you are from, you know, I don't know, maybe it's universal, but like people started getting sent away to rehabs and started getting introduced to the 12 steps. I came to my first meeting when I think I was 13 years old and we started doing this thing where like we knew the drill where you would get you if you got sent to rehab, you were going to get brainwashed. You were going to come back and you were going to talk about the 12 steps and let go and let God. And you were going to, you know, do all this stuff. And we would be patient with you for a while. And then we called it helping each other relapse. You know, it was like, come on, chief, we'll, we'll take care of you. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Serenity prayer, all that stuff. And, um, you know, we, we give people like two months tops. And eventually I started doing the revolving door of going into places, um, and, you know, it happened to me where I get exposed to the 12 steps. People in these, you know, I was always this young kid in these rehabs and people were being really kind to me. And they're like, you don't have to live this way, Andrew, you know, whatever. And it sounded kind of good, but like it just it didn't really jive. And I would get out and and then I'd relapse. Uh, things got really crazy and really, you know, things escalated for us fast. And I had a year in the early nineties where there was a lot of, I saw a lot of bad shit and there was like death and things were really violent and, uh, things just escalated really, really fast. And it was really, really traumatic and it scared the shit out of me. Um, and I wanted to get sober. I knew that it had something to do with alcohol and I had become as this, you know, punk little kid. Like I drank every time I could at any expense. It didn't matter. So I started going to meetings and I would do this thing where I would go to meetings and um, I'd kind of want to stay sober. 
and you know they they didn't do the spiritual timekeeper stuff then so like if i somebody called me in a meeting i would share for like nine minutes you know until they would like just talk over me or whatever and um and then eventually sometimes i would have to change up my meetings because people would quit calling on me um and i would put together you know a month you know 30 days whatever and then i'd go out and what i was doing was i was going to aa and i was kind of digging in the fellowship a little bit but uh it's like I was talking about earlier. I was very, very far. I didn't even compute that you people actually did the steps. I knew we talked about the steps and talked about like all this shit, but like I didn't know that it was like something that people actually did. So I never got any results. Even I would tell you that I was trying AA over and over again, and AA didn't work because I wasn't staying sober. Um, and I, you know, the truth is I didn't really have any relapses because like even if I had time, like I didn't experience any recovery and a was baffling to me because what I honestly thought was happening in my young mind is that like you people were coming here and white knuckled long enough to where it got a little bit easier. And then you were just lying to yourself when you talked about how good life was. That's what I thought AA was. And I kept trying to do that and it wasn't working for me, you know? Um, so I had, I went into a, a, a facility and I really wanted to stay sober. I was really confused. I was like foggy and you know, I, I, I got out and I was doing this outpatient thing and I was working at a job and, you know, catching some meetings here and there. And on New Year's Eve, I thought I could have like one hit off of a joint <laughs> and, uh, and I did. And I didn't draw a sober breath. You know, that I had a hit off of joint, which of course led me to alcohol. And um, I don't remember anything about like the month of January that year. And um, and it escalated, you know, like I, I'll say that, you know, I, the third tradition, I feel like says where it's okay for me to mention drugs. And so I will, you know, I'm an IV drug user. I'm, I'm a junkie. Um, I shoot heroin and shoot coke. It was what I, I did. But I can honestly tell you, alcohol was the alpha and the omega for me. You know, like, I, my body was just a machine to process alcohol. And I, I wound up getting in some trouble. Uh, I got, you know, we, it, this is a really stupid story. But, you know, this is the last year of my drinking. And I'm with a bunch of guys. We're in my, I have this jalopy of a car. I have like an 82 Nissan. And... We pull over so a couple of guys can like rob this house or just go in there and look for them. And, and they didn't take any, they took two things. They took a donut, which I did eat the donut, and they took a stupid Grateful Dead tape. That's it. So we leave, we party all night. I'm dropping everybody off at like six in the morning and somebody reported my license plate because uh, they saw the whole thing and I get pulled over. The cops are looking for my, you know, piece of crap car. And there's tons of drugs in the front seat of my car. And I go to jail. And I, um, I had this really scary thought when I was in jail. I started detoxing off of dope and booze. And, uh, and I had this thought that I have got to get sober. And then I had this other thought that was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to you. You know, at this point, I had seen people die in front of me and all this stuff had happened. Like, no amount of consequences was going to get me sober. And 
And I knew that, and it was horrifying. And I had, you know, the classic, like, my endorphins were ruined, you know? <laughs> so I, uh, I got out of there, and I was maybe sober for, I don't know, a couple hours after getting out of there. My parents, my parents pawned all my, uh, a bunch of my stuff to, like, bail me out. And um, so that, that was the middle of 94, I, you know, had a job at the time where I got under the table cash every day and I just, I led a really simple one day at a time life where all I did was drink and go to this job, get paid, use dope and, and use people in my family. You know, I would have been, you know, total skid row, if like, but I would show up at like family members' houses and they were scared I was going to die, you know, and so they would let me in and, and no one would talk to me. You know, I was a real pariah for, for my family. Um, in October of that year, I wound up in another 28-day program, and I really wanted to stay clean, man. Um, I, uh, I went through the thing. You know, we had people coming in, bringing meetings to us and all this stuff, and I really wanted to stay clean. I got out of there. I was going to meetings every day. Um, still and doing like the aftercare thing and all this jazz and uh i wound up shooting dope one night after work somebody showed up to my job and i wound up you know we went to the place we got this up i shot some dope and i didn't feel anything i didn't get high at all and but i had lost you know this you know month and change of sobriety uh so i immediately did some more and it i had that thing happen where I, I drank every single day and I did dope every single day and I could not stop doing it and it quit working for me and I still couldn't stop doing it. And what the book, the, the book calls this the jumping off place, which I, as I understand it means that I can't fathom getting sober and I can't fathom continuing to drink. And I really couldn't, I was with like straight up in this rock and a hard place, which was, I guess where I needed to be because all I had been willing and able to do at that point was, you know, I knew I had a problem that I was powerless, but I would go to meetings and I, I did not have enough of an impetus to ask somebody honestly for help. Occasionally I had asked somebody to be my sponsor and it would always be somebody who was like right about to go to jail. <laughs> you know, like I would find the sketchiest dude in the room and ask him to be my sponsor and if he kept coming back to meetings, I would just change what meetings I went to. You know, hide-and-go sponsor, they used to call it. And um, so it's, I relapsed for a few months, uh, December, end of, end of the year in 94, between Christmas and New Year's uh, of 94, I wound up in a detox. By, you know, strange turn of events. Like, if you want to know that whole story, I'll tell you sometime one-on-one. -on -one. But I wound up in a detox in Jackson, Mississippi, which was not my life vision at all. <laughs> you know, like that was like, for me, that was the last door on the left. I had no desire to be there. It was a little foggy winding up there. It had something to do with the law. And, you know, anyways, so I'm in this place. I'm court ordered to be there. I have to be there. I, you know, it's either there or jail. And um, I'm real just, you know, mad as hell. Uh, I watched, you know, New Year's Eve of 94, I watched people shooting off fireworks on the other side of I-55, you know, this detox place right on the 
right on I-55 and, and South Jackson, um, they made me go to this long-term treatment place. So I did this, like, you know, the whole nine yards where you do the, like, phases where I get a job, you know, I got a job flipping burgers, and I didn't know anyone in this town except people in AA, man. And, like, um, I nobody was, it, it had been made abundantly clear to me that, like, I had used up all my beg, borrow, and stealing, you know, options. You know, my last night out there, I stole money from my grandmother. You know, like, I'm a pitiful drunk. I, that that my grandmother went to sleep and we were in Birmingham. It was Christmas time and I went and took money out of people's wallets. And and, and this is me trying to stay sober. I was like, I'm not going to drink. I was going to meetings and I was detoxing, but I was like, just in case, I need to make sure I have some. Dough. <laughs> you know, like I need to make sure I have enough bread to like get right. Um, so my entrance into sobriety that last this last time around was real rocky, man. Like. Uh, no one was going to bet on me. I smelled like a foot, um, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of like, I don't know, 120 pounds, 130 pounds, something like that. And I'm like, you know, 5'11". So I, I was kind of ghostly. Um, and that's my entrance into sobriety. You know, like I, I did this long-term thing and I got exposed to AA. I heard a lot of stuff that I liked, but I was real jaded, man. Like, I didn't really believe anymore in these moments of clarity because I had probably had at this point in my life a thousand moments of clarity and they didn't keep me sober. You know, I'm the type of drunk that I could throw up, you know, I, I used to drink and drive every day and I could literally throw a bottle out the window of my car and then turn around five minutes later and go get it. That's the kind of drunk I am. That's like literally the stuff that I do. So like this, Oh, now I really have to stay sober. I just didn't believe in that, man. That, that was dead to me. That, you know, the frothy emotional appeal thing that it talks about. Like, I knew that that was bullshit for me. And, and I didn't really know if there was a lot of hope. But I just, I kept going and you know, I had to keep going. Um, and I had, you know, like, a lot of my story, like I, like I was talking about earlier, like, I don't think bad things happen, happening, quote unquote, bad things happening are God's will. But I do really believe that God's will can be picked out of any situation. And, you know, I was supposed to get out of this place and I was scared to do it. You know, I was going to move into an apartment and all this stuff. And I, uh, I have a big problem of asking for help. And, you know, at the guys in here that know me probably know that by now kind of well. That Like, I have a tendency to John Wayne my problems or whatever. But so anyways... I graduate, quote-unquote, graduate out of this treatment place. I'm driving over a bridge, and the engine of my car locks up. Like, the, the you know, it's done. I'm sitting on the hood of my car. Uh, this is before cell phones. I could have walked a mile to a pay phone. I'm in, like, rural Mississippi. Sitting on the hood of the car, head in the hands. Dude in AA happens to drive by that I know, and he gives me a ride into town. I, uh, you know, I'm supposed to move into this place with another sober guy totally falls through at a meeting. Somebody needs somebody to stay in a room for a few days. You know, all this voodoo AA stuff started happening. And I'm not like a praying guy at this point, you know, but like it's undeniable that AA is really starting to work. And so I just started like, you know, the only people in this town that were kind to me that I knew outside of my job flipping burgers at Backyard Burgers were people in AA. And they were so cool, man. And like, 
you know, it was young people in AA and all this this stuff. So, like, we kept it really weird. We smoked cigarettes at the diner till 4 in the morning, you know, the whole nine yards. And, and we went to a lot of meetings. And, um, and so I got kind of high off the fellowship of AA. And that's not bad. It's not bad at all, but it wasn't enough to sustain long-term sobriety. And here's, you know, the reason why is that, you know, part of what untreated alcoholism for me, one of the one of the aspects of it is that, like, I have all these human feelings, and I want to treat them any way I can. And I did that with, with drugs and alcohol until it completely quit working. And then, you know, I get sober, and I'm still living this way. You know, I like what happens at AA meetings, and I like hearing people and all this stuff, but, like, if I'm not feeling right, if I'm feeling lonely, instead of sitting with the loneliness or like talking to someone about it, I would go out and seek stuff. And what that turned into uh, for me was like kind of being one of those classic young promiscuous newcomers, you know. And uh, there was um, another young promiscuous newcomer of the opposite sex. And... Uh, we got promiscuous together, and the, the first time I had sex in sobriety, I guess at this time I had, like, maybe six months clean, she got pregnant. And so we move in together, you know, and, and whatever, whatever. We, be, we don't really know each other that well, but we move in together, and we're, you know, kind of doing this thing, and our, our daughter is born. We have this beautiful baby. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, she relapses, and... And I kept going to AA, and it was a bad relapse. Like, she had a really, really hard time. You know, like, uh, she relapsed on booze. She relapsed on dope. She, it, it was gruesome. And I have such a hard time asking for help that I would still go to meetings and kind of lie. If somebody asked me how I was doing, I would say I was doing great. but then I would bawl my eyes out after the meeting on the way home like I just could not let you guys in until the wheels completely fell off and what that looked like for me was you know she left and she and you know I got to be honest like it was kind of a somewhat of an amicable thing you know she was she was she kind of had some clarity and she was like I'm smoking crack and our daughter has a shot with you so I'm I, I'm not gonna you know whatever, uh, and I was horrified. I had no idea how to take care of a kid or anything like that, and um, that's what it took for me to really, really take the first step. And for me, like, like I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I really, really knew that. Like balls to bones, I knew that. But the unmanageability thing, maybe deep down I knew it, but I was afraid of it. I was very, very scared because if, to me, if I, when I really took the first step, the second step and the third step kind of come with it. You know, it's I, my analogy for it is always like passing kidney stones. You know, I had all this pain and then it was like, you know, I can't do this. There is no way I can do this. And I had this thought that like, I need to ask somebody to take me through the steps. And then I actually asked this dude to take me through the steps. And it was like a real, you know, turning point for me but it didn't feel like a turning point you know like it was just this thing that I had to do but not a thing where I was like rah rah this is going to work this is going to change my life you know like 
And like I said, I don't really trust those as much anymore anyways because I had them all the time. But I asked this dude, Kent, to take me through the book, and he said he would, and it went really, really slow, man. Like, we we did a page a day, um, and he told me, you know, his big thing was that I should try and help others. Whether I thought I had anything to offer or not, I should look for places to be of use to other people, even if it's just listening to somebody after a meeting. And... Um, and starting to do that was the stuff that, like, like I, I do distinctly remember the first time after he told me to do that where I went up to a guy after a meeting and was like, yo, let's talk, man. Seems like you're having a hard time or whatever. And I really got to tell you, I did not think that it was going to change my life. But what happened that night was I went home. I relieved the babysitter. I was in my crappy little apartment with my kid, and I had no desire to drink. I had no desire to, like, you know, be with somebody I wasn't supposed to be with in a weird way. You know, like, there was, for that night, there was nothing left. There was nothing else to fix, you know. Um, I didn't need to fix anything else. It was relieved for a day. And, and you know, to me, that's, like, kind of the long and short of AA. But, um, so, since then... Uh, that was like, by the time this stuff happened and me starting to go through the steps with that dude, it's probably, I don't know, 1996, 1997. We went through the steps and I got really, really gung-ho for AA. And I, I don't think pink clouds are bad, man. Like, I, had, I didn't have one in early sobriety. I had one when I had a couple of years and I actually started doing the thing. And it lasted for me for a while. And I sponsored a bunch of dudes. None of them stayed sober. But uh, <laughs> but I, I guess my sponsorship had a 100% success rate because I stayed sober. Um, and it was a little bit ridiculous, you know. Like, and we, I did the thing where sometimes I see it sometimes where, like, after a meeting, if there's a newcomer, people are almost, like, beating each other up to see who gets to them first, you know. It's like it's kind of like contest thing, whatever. And I did that, man. And, um, and that's where I was at, you know. I've had a lot of grace in my sobriety. Um, and, you know, but what happened, uh, you know, the what happened and what it's like now is a real ongoing thing. But I eventually my life started getting a little bigger and I started like branching out. I moved to New York um, and and, you know, we're getting up to about the time I met Al. Uh, you know, when I first got here. I got a sponsor and, and we didn't really jive and all this stuff. And um I got another sponsor and it was cool and I was sponsoring a few dudes, but, uh, it's funny, man. Like, I, I don't know if the, again, maybe this is like a voodoo or whatever, but like I, they would quit calling it, it somehow magically. Those guys would quit calling me when I would like get out of touch and quit calling my sponsor, you know, like it's like, it was almost like self-will just like permeated, you know, it's like, well, I need to do this. I need to, I need to, you know, worry about graduate school. And, you know, like my daughter was five or six years old or something like that. I was remarried to this very strange, abusive woman, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I was holding on to what I had, you know, like I, that thing, you know, we're either afraid of losing, you know, not getting what we want or losing what we got. And, um, and I had this life where I was gripping on to the stuff I had, which in hindsight was not that great, you know? Um, and, and that became more important to me 
you know, it became a higher power to me, you know, maintaining this, this marriage that was clearly doomed because, you know, the woman was cheating on me. But uh, I was so afraid of being alone that I was like, cool, I'll, I'll tell you, this is the best I can do. So, like, you know, I'm not going to trust a higher power. I'm just going to hold on to what I got <laughs> with both hands. And, um, and again, the wheels fell off, and I still didn't really have, you know, the impetus to reach out until that thing happened where, you know, it wasn't God's will for me to get jumped by a gang, but when it did... God's will was right there for me to grab onto when I needed it. And I did. And um, it kind of turned a page for me where, like, I saw, you know, kind of, I don't know if you've ever read, like, Dr. Bob's story. And at the end of Dr. Bob's thing, he talks about, you know, owing this debt of gratitude to AA. But, like, it got proved unequivocally to me that, like, I've been really loved unconditionally in here. You know, and, like, and this is the only thing that has ever really, really worked for me. I kind of do believe that AA is spiritual kindergarten, and uh, this is, like, the first thing we do. But, like, man, AA saved my life. Like, can I maybe clock three meetings a week and start there and see how it goes? And um, I really started letting AA, like, kind of have, like, a big place in my life again. And not in the same, not exactly in the same dogmatic way that it used to, but uh, but it became really important. It's a priority in my life, um, and that you know, like the the consistency thing. Like we have all the you know, this, this checklist stuff that we can do every day. You know, it's like pray and meditate. We can you know talk to other alcoholics. We can work with a sponsor. We can have sponsees. The consistency for that stuff has come extremely slow to me. You know, it's been a really, really graceful thing. You know, like I, I have not had to relapse because I haven't done AA perfectly, but I have had the thing happen where like I've gotten closer and closer and closer and very, very slowly more consistent with a lot of these things. And it's, it's blessed me and made me feel really, really lucky when, um, when the bad stuff happens and when the good stuff happens, because I, I, you know, like since that time and, and what, you know, whatever it was the early two thousands when I met Al, like I've had a couple other, like really life changing things where in hindsight, all of them have turned into assets. You know, I got a divorce from that woman and, and, you know, I guess around a decade ago and, uh, and right before I got a divorce from her, out of nowhere, you know, I was showing up, I was doing the thing, and like, out of nowhere, I got five new sponsees. I don't know where they came from, just five dudes asked me to sponsor them, and I got a new sponsor. And then all of a sudden, my career took a shit, and I'm going through a divorce, but like, I've got these dudes calling me all the time, you know, so I don't have, I, you know, like, the hand of AA has grabbed me. It was a real graceful thing. Um, and then... You know, fast forward to a few years ago, uh, I don't know, I'll say this real quick too, like, I hope everybody feels this way, but I can honestly tell you at this point in my life, I feel like my program is custom made for me. I hope, I hope everybody feels like that, but like, my sponsor who, who is here tonight, I feel like is custom made for me. You know, like, it's a special thing. I feel like PAX, the, you know, the group that I consider my home group, and then I have another, men's group that's kind of my home group i feel like they're custom made for me like a it feels like 
AA is a tailor-made thing where it just fits me perfectly. I love the way it works for me. Um, I'm not, I'm not happy all the time and I'm not like, you know, thrilled all the time. I, I, I think when I was using and even a long time in sobriety, I, I think I mentioned this earlier too. Like I thought that life had to either be really, really awesome feeling all the time or really, really awful. I lived in this binary world where it's like you, you either have to be great or horrible. And that's also the way I thought of myself. I either thought of myself as like the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. And like really doing this on a consistent basis has given me the gift of like the middle, <laughs> you know, like, like my life right now today has some serious challenges and it also has some serious blessings. You know, it's not boring at all, it, it but if you take the average of all the good stuff and all the challenges in my life, it's just a life, you know? I'm just like, I really have, like, because of this program, because of these things, like, I'm just a dude that joined the human race, <laughs> you know? Like, and it's and it's not so bad. I like it. Um, I like being human with you guys. Uh, I'm trying these days, like, to have a little bit more compassion for, for everybody. Um, and a little bit more for myself, you know what I mean? But like, I, um, I don't know, man, this is, this is not, you know, like some of the stuff we read all the time, I just tuned out and heard a different message. You know, like I heard what I heard was like, because, you know, this speaks to my own like seven stuff stuff that I'm working on. But like what I heard through my, you know, weird filter was that like, we have to come into AA to be good and we need to be really, really good and you better be good enough. But actually it never really says that. It says we're not saints. You know, we are really imperfect people. and It says we're frequently wrong, but that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. And I got to tell you, man, I am frequently wrong, but not because I'm like super stoked about being a better person, but just because I've, I've experienced what works like, I am willing to grow along spiritual lines and it's a really slow, slow process for me. Um, I guess that's about it. I guess the, the last thing I'll say that, um, I think is really, really important. And I, I need to be reminded of this is that we are welcome here, especially here. This is an open meeting. We are welcome. This is an inclusive program. It talks about the broad highway, you know, like this is a broad highway. This is an inclusive thing. You are welcome here. If you, if you want to stop drinking and you want to continue to stay stop drinking and have like a spiritual way of like doing that, you are most welcome here. And if you're not sure if you want that, you are welcome here. <laughs> and I am too, man. And I need that. I need to hear that. Uh, and I love AA. I love a lot of you people here. And those that um, that I don't know, I probably love you too. <laughs> you know? um, thanks a lot. I'm glad to see you. And thank you. All right, Andrew.